Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership podcast. Driving positive change in society means a lot to me. It certainly means a lot to our guests here. And with my wife, Lee, as CEO of a charity, I know how tough it is. And this lady uh, is trying to not only make a huge difference in the charity and giving back to society, but also she has a family of four small people, which takes a lot of commitment. So without further ado, I'll let her introduce herself. Thank you, Jonathan. I'm Sarah Walno. I'm the Chief Executive of Asthma and Lung UK. We are the nation's lung charity and uh, we do a range of things, but all about trying to improve the health uh, and the experience of people living with lung conditions across the UK. Mm, well, fascinating. And it's lovely to have you on this series. And actually, the whole thing about um, lung uh, lung issues uh, and asthma, um, you know, family members have had asthma. Um, my late mother-in-law who lived with us here, she had heart disease and lung disease um, and she had um, cancer and she had Alzheimer's. And one of those was going to kill her. They were, I think they call it multiple co comorbidities, comorbidities. Um, but also I've been very interested in James Nestor and Patrick McEwen, who both did books on breathing. Uh, breath and um, I, I forgot what the other one was called but um, this this whole thing about people take for granted you just breathe but actually whether it be going on mindfulness retreats or Wim Hof in ice buckets where you're doing different types of breathing to cope with things the lungs are such an important part aren't they I mean I don't know I wasn't expecting to talk about that Sarah but just it came up what's your thoughts just 100%. Um, and, and it's so interesting. So Asthma and Lung UK is the product of a merger. It's Asthma UK coming together with the British Lung Foundation. Uh, and the merger happened a couple of years ago, and we've been working really hard to bring things together. As part of that, I, we, um, across the charity, have talked to thousands of people with lung conditions, be that asthma, COPD, a range of other lung conditions. And the kind of golden thread that uh, binds everyone together is it's terrifying struggling to breathe. But it is something we generally take for granted in society. So, you know, the lungs don't have much prominence in the same way as, as the heart does in sort of popular culture. And, you know, we don't talk about lung health. We don't seem to value it uh, in the way that we value other uh, other other elements of our health so part of my mission our mission as a charity is to say um that's not quite right we need to do much better by this group of people and it's fascinating because there's so much stigma still attached to lung disease partly the link to tobacco uh partly the link to poverty and class and occupational exposure um to to things that might cause lung disease so again part of our mission and something i feel really passionately about is destigmatizing um and saying you know we all deserve good lung health whatever may have happened to you or whatever choices you've made um and and you know as a consequence if we fund more research and we campaign let's try and position lung health as something we should all care about mm, yeah it, it triggers more for me uh particularly um the book was called the oxygen advantage and the other book was called breath um, by James Nestor and Patrick McEwen. I can't remember which way around it was. But in it, the, the, the point they're making is that rather than waiting for your lungs to decay and become a problem through vaping or... Because, of course, people go, maybe that's fine, it's no problem. But actually, they haven't done the research yet on it and vaping is causing problems. You know, putting water vapour into your lungs, not a clever idea, really. Uh, people go, yeah, it's no problem. No, it's not. It is a problem. Um, and obviously, I saw the effects uh, with various uh, relations like my mother-in-law uh, who who smoked and the effect there. Um, and they go, well, you know, it's not a problem. My doctor said, yeah, it's OK, carry on with it. But but we often wait until there's a problem to then start dealing with it. 
but actually it, it's like a national sickness service rather than national health service. And I think we need to go upstream much more, which is what your charity and others are doing, to go, what can we do to look after our health in the first place by teaching people that the way you breathe and the importance of breathing and the clean air that you have. Uh, I mean, I, I worked and lived in the city of London um, and just recently uh, left the flat that my wife and I had there. But we were up on the seventh floor mm. near the Barbican. And there's a tunnel that goes under the Barbican, which is probably the most polluted tunnel in London. And the, and the quality of the air there was so bad that even up on the seventh floor nearby, mm. there was black particles. If I just mm. ran my finger along the windowsill in a sealed room, so yeah. we had air conditioned sealed room, it was still coming in. Yeah. That's going in your lungs. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I mean, I can only uh, agree very strongly with you. Um, we we diagnose lung disease late, typically, and we don't really understand um, anywhere near as much as we should do about early lung disease development. We do know that, uh, you know, lung health peaks late childhood, sort of te teenage years. And if we were to better research, better understand early disease development, we could diagnose earlier. So that is a massive uh, priority for the charity and for the respiratory community. On clean air, we often talk about the invisible threat now because we don't have the smogs of the 1950s, but nevertheless, we have a massive toxic air problem. Uh, and it's partly tiny particles that you can't see, but you know, in your, in your case, um, you know, you could visibly see see the pollution. I knew this was a huge issue before I joined the charity. I didn't realize quite the extent to which it affects people with lung conditions. So 70% of our beneficiaries, the millions of people with lung conditions will say that uh, air pollution is a trigger. It causes asthma attacks. It causes COPD exacerbations. You know, it just affects the way they can live day to day they can't exercise they can't get out and about and walk uh, many people have to leave cities and you know we say you wouldn't drink dirty water so why are you breathing dirty air so it's a major campaigning focus for the charity i think it's really interesting and in uh, sort of from a personal experience both my daughters uh have asthma and have uh, at times you know really had panicky moments when they've had such a bad attack a good friend of mine when i was in the army died of an asthma attack he just didn't manage to get treatment in time the ambulance was too late and he died and we just it was just so young in life he was in his 20s and we never expected that um and then a good friend of mine um who i work with a client uh his son who's in his 20s now has very very bad uh cerebral palsy and so that the lungs are really quite cramped up so so there's there's constant moments of is he going to live is he going to die and, and and having to live with that is just um, so, so hard. And it was interesting that, you know, I'm now about to be 61 in, in next month, in March. And um, about three years ago, I had late onset asthma. I thought, this what's going on? You know, like, why am I having problems? And I you know had an inhaler, I had a test. But what I found, and, and maybe it doesn't work for everybody, but everybody's different. I, I work out that with your microbiome and, and your different tests that I've done, blood tests, and, and I'm fascinated by the whole body and, and what goes on inside us. But I found by removing dairy um, that my late onset asthma completely went um, to the point that I don't have it anymore. No more inhalers. I don't, I'm very blessed. I don't need that now, but it was a problem for me. And I think it was a problem when I was living and working in the London environment. And now I'm back here in Lincolnshire. I don't have that problem. I'm out walking in clean air. So you realize it's a real it's not a given it's not a right well it's a right for everybody to have clean air but it, it's something that you can easily take for granted until you start to find a problem to breathe and i sort of forgot about the the impact of dairy on me until again about three months ago where i found dairy was having quite an impact on it i, I thought what is it so i took it out of my diet out of my diet again i hadn't had much of it but again, it, everything went back to normal. Mm -hmm. So everyone's got to work out what triggers them. D does that resonate for you? What triggers people with their? Yeah, it does. I mean, people have a whole range of different triggers: cold air, um, actually, very hot weather. Pollen is a huge trigger. Um, can be for for asthma. Um, I think something we feel very strongly is that um, 
you know, lots of people don't have a choice about where they live, they work, they go to school, they play. Um, and so there is a there's a sort of social justice dynamic to, mm -hmm. to clean air. And that's driving some of our campaigning work. One of the analyses we did, we looked at um, levels of air pollution around maternity units, so where babies are being born, and schools and care homes and GP surgeries. And so many of these places, um, you know, are exceeding World Health Organization guidelines, some of them are breaking, breaking the law. Um, and, and, you know, so many people just have to live there or work there or or you know visit so yeah we're on a we're on a mission to clean up the air it has the added advantage that hopefully it elevates lung health back to our first point that it's not just seen as oh well it's a problem if you have asthma or a problem if you uh you know you smoked for 30 years and you've got copd it's something we should all care about yeah yeah definitely and 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 it's a thing that you just take it for granted until you stop breathing, and then you realise, oh my god, I just take this for granted. I need to breathe, and 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 the whole thing about um, particularly in those books I was reading about the the combination of of oxygen and carbon dioxide and nitric oxide and and how you breathe. And and I now when I train, I breathe through my nose. So nasal breathing is so much better for you to control things. Obviously, it's got the uh, the hairs within the nasal to to warm and and uh, cope with the dust particles coming out. But even just when I was uh, uh, away last week in the Middle East, you see this haze, even though the sunshine and you go, it was in Dubai. And you go, well, why is the haze? Well, it's the sand that's in the air um, combined with, you know, combined with the, 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 the fog of pollution. And you go, wow, if that's in the air, that's that's what I'm I'm walking in this. So, yeah, really interesting. Well, lovely having you. And and I, I wasn't expecting to to major so much on such a key topic, but it is the heart of uh, the asthma and lung UK charity. And those let's make sure we get those those lungs working. And uh, exercise, of course, helps us so much um, in, in keeping our lungs as those sort of bellows working again. We're, the topic is inspiring leadership, and uh, you were recommended as an inspired leader to come on the series, which is so so lovely. Um, thinking about inspiring leadership, what does it mean to you, Sarah? And if you were to call out a few people over your career that you found inspiring, who were they? And um, what what were the qualities of the two or three qualities that you found inspiring about them? Yeah. Well, I have been fortunate enough, and I'm very privileged in my role now, but fortunate fortunate enough to spend um, 20 plus years in, in the charity sector. So there's definitely something about uh, inspiring leadership, which is, you know, I've worked for some brilliant causes or I've been associated, you know, been trustee of charities, uh, fantastic causes. Some of the leaders I've most admired have really harnessed the power of the cause to kind of set a vision and to make people feel part of the journey towards, you know, changing society for the good. Mm -hmm. So I think there's something for me about, uh, you know, lots of people choose to work for, for charities or, or volunteer or get involved for very personal reasons, but because they're motivated by a cause, because it touches them. So I think there is something about the best leaders I've witnessed in action have, have harnessed that. They've made everyone feel a part of driving forward that mission. And I think, you know, I've worked in some, some very large charities. And if you're working in accounts or you're, you know, on the IT help desk, you know, you still want to feel part of driving whatever your role is. Um, you you want to feel part of driving that positive change and that and that force. So that's one element. I mean, I think the other is much more generic, which is, you know, the most inspiring leaders and what it means to me is, is being authentic. It's treating people, um, you know, as you would want to be treated, um, at, at having integrity. Um, and, and there's something about, um, you know, I've worked with lots of academics. I've worked in medical research charities for many, many years. Um, the very best leaders I've worked with are really generous 
in how they share their expertise and how they share information. So they will open up their world to you. And sometimes that's a very complicated, you know, highly scientific world, but they will paint pictures. That means that everyone can access that. And that is so motivating and powerful. Yeah, and it was interesting. I, I loved my work with the Sanger uh, Institute and and they, uh, Professor Sir Mike Stratton was the person I was lucky enough to coach and work with and his leadership team. Uh, and they very much opened up their research and all that they do to help other people. Uh, and I so admired that. And I think you're so right about uh, charities. I mean, some of the finest commercial organizations I work with have a semi charitable cause and they have a mission a calling so for example i'd call out remitly global who uh, matt oppenheimer as the ceo has been on this series uh, and matt and josh is co-founder and their leadership team they have a mission which is to to improve the lives of immigrants sending money back to their loved ones so through an app an online app to, to remittances and and that gives it a real sense of purpose and giving back and 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 helping others and so you're quite right when I think of some of the you know we've had Sir Peter Wanless on here and, and at the NSPCC and others and, and it's great when they've got a real inspiration and a cause and I think I also at the same time I reflect on just as a slight dark side to some charities that we've just got to be aware of we almost like imagine they're always full of great good people who are doing lovely work and it must be so easy working in a charity because they're all lovely people. But as you know, from your 20 plus years, my experience in coaching in some of these charities is occasionally they have people who are on the spectrum of the white collar psychopath and they see a charity as full of quite vulnerable people who they can get power and authority and they can they can go. But I'm a good person because I work for a charity. But no, your behavior is horrible. And it's your bet. You, you may be a good person, but your behavior is not. Yeah. And and sometimes in charities, people don't call out toxic behavior or toxic individuals and they go, oh, we can't get rid of them because they they've been supporting this charity for 20 years. But you go, yeah. but they're a prima donna and they're holding you to ransom. Really? Well, do you mean we can? Yeah. Help them find their happiness elsewhere. They're destroying your charity and and the culture has gone toxic and it's not what you'd wish the people you're benefiting would see. Have you ever experienced that? Or is it just my experience, Sarah? No, I have experienced it. I, I think um, I've been lucky enough to work um, at large charities for, for, for many, many years where there's been a huge focus on, uh, you know, we're an incredibly professional, uh, you, you know, quite commercial, actually, in, in, in the way we think about things. Um, one of the things I try to hold dear is, look, we are we are spending really hard uh, earned money. You know, pe people are out there running events, baking cakes. Um, this is this, this this is charitable funds. And actually, it's been a driver for me. And I know it's been a driver for lots of others. And I think that the sector is not perfect, of course. But I think that feeling of we've got to spend this money wisely. And therefore, we you know, that should drive a really positive culture. It should should drive a low tolerance for poor behavior that's going to detract from good performance um I, I, but you're right that that just because people are working in charities it doesn't mean you know organizations don't face exactly the same issues as uh, companies in the private sector in fact i think in some ways with my experience it's a bit harder because the sort of the expectation it's going to be so much easier but actually everything is there but you're actually quite resource tight and 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 you you so need to do some of the things that in business you go let's just do it we'll just spend the money but you go we haven't got the money this year so we just can't do that what, what do you think I saw it. yeah well do you know the other dimension to that is um it can be harder to prioritize because um or, or to, to, to hold firm on some of that prioritization because uh you know you're working for a really powerful cause you can do lots of good uh, and uh you know lots of people have got bright ideas so actually being incredibly disciplined and and not wanting to dampen the enthusiasm or the ambition but saying you know this is the resource envelope we have uh we will there's a trade-off if we try to do too much we risk not having the impact we want let's pick a few things but it's hard to say no to people you know if you've got beneficiaries or you've got i don't know government or you've got funds 
advisors saying, you know, dangling some money. It's hard to say no to that. Um, yeah. So to, I, I think you're right to have the discipline to say, you know, this is where we think we'll drive most impact. Uh, we can't do everything, um, uh, but equally, we shouldn't try to do too much. And this was a point on resources. You know, you as the CEO, as a leader, um, your resource is your time. And that's your finite amount. You've got um, four children, nine, seven and twins of four. And you and your partner have got your work cut out because it's a very busy job. How how have you managed to because there isn't such thing as work life balance. There's work life integration. How do you manage it and what have you found hard about about holding down busy jobs with a small family at the same time? Yeah, I suppose the truth is you manage it kind of week to week. Um, there have been some low points and some challenging times. I have always loved work. Um, and so, uh, you know, my partner often jokes, you, you know, if, if we won the lottery, I hope he doesn't mind me saying this. He'd resign within hours, and I and I say I I have to keep working because um, it's always been so important to me. So in a way, I've I've known and you know I've had to work financially, and I and I will have to work, but it but it is challenging. Um, I suppose a couple of reflections. The pandemic has massively shifted things. I look back, and you know, I was, I was never, I never worked from home pre-pandemic. So I was in the office um, since since I had um, my now nine-year-old four days a week. Um, I went back quickly after I, I had child number one, and I was just constantly rushing, constantly running for trains. Uh, you know, ch- checking I wouldn't be late for childcare. Uh, juggle 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 and and that's still the case but actually the pandemic has opened up this totally new way of working there's 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 a bit of a risk to that 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 you get too much you know you don't have any demarcation and you don't have separation between work and life and sometimes I find for my mental well-being it's really important to try to do that but it does mean um you know you can get up early you can do some work you can then take the kids to school you know you can you can be at home more you can juggle things more easily um so it's up and down i mean i think another reflection would be it changes very quickly i mean you know this jonathan um, with your children everything's phases something i feel very passionately about is um women supporting women uh well and not just women you know workers supporting uh parents um who want to take time out and or who are in particular phases where you know they want to work differently but actually every phase goes pretty quickly and then you can work in a different way and since I've had kids you know I've worked for for a short period three days four days four and a half days you know I I work full-time now but I you know manage it around commitments at home Uh, so it's it's a juggle but I think one of my reflections is, you know, you have one week where you think you're completely winning at it. And the next week you think this is a total disaster and I'm doing everything substandard. Mm, well, <laughs> it, 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 you're so right. And it resonates with in our household here. Um, we're, we're lucky that we have the space that we can have uh, our son who's in the police uh, and his wife. Uh, she's not at the moment working, but she's looking forward to getting back into work. But we've got our two-year-old and our one-year-old granddaughter and grandson living with us. And so we've got them and a five-month-old puppy and a two-and-a-half-year-old dog. So it can be a bit chaotic here, as well as trying to trying to run our jobs and Lee run her charity, as well as doing her coaching. And But seeing my daughter-in-law when her husband is away on six days of shift and, and she's on her own here, uh, we all muck in. But if we weren't, you know, just seeing the lack of sleep that she I know what it was like. But that was, you know, when I was growing up with my wife. But but now to see it as a grandparent and just they've got to keep going. But they're they're almost sleep deprived to the point of being drunk in the morning with exhaustion. <laughs> and because, you know, the one year old was up three times. That was great. But the two year old was up twice but not at the same time. So she like, she found herself lying on the floor next to the cot to try and help the one go to sleep. Oh God, you know, it, it is tough. And then you want to come in and be at your best and be a business athlete and think well and make great decisions and charm everybody and be happy and, hey, get real. You know, this is not easy. 
And there's going to be some days when you're subpar and you've got to go, sorry, I apologize. I'm you know, not at best speed, but bear with me. But often people don't have much tolerance. Anyway, talking about that, that really touches into the next question I was going to ask you, Sarah, which is about life. And, you know, you're, we are shaped, you and I um, and all, everyone listening, by the, the upbringing we have. I've just been on the Hoffman process, which is a fascinating program, the Hoffman Institute program. And I think uh, in my 61 years, probably the most influential program I have ever done. But I was looking back at my childhood and how it shaped me and what's gone on. How about you, Sarah? What shaped you into the inspiring leader that people say you are today? What events and people? How was growing up and, and how's that made you into the energetic, driven, passionate leader you are today? Well, I had a I had a very happy, comfortable childhood. My parents had had m more challenging um, childhoods, a combination of um, bereavement on, on my mum's side, uh, young, her dad died when she was young. Um, and on, on my dad's side, various challenges, but but had grown up, they both grown up, um, you know, in, in quite um, poor, working class um households and particularly um my dad he left school when he was 14 he, he didn't get any qualifications he had to work and he doesn't talk that much about it or he's never talked that much about it but there were some very tough times I know that and so he has had this most incredible drive um throughout his life and and they've both been driven um you know they they have known tough times and so I think throughout my childhood never ever because they were you know quite sort of stiff upper lip about just you get on with things you get on with things you work hard you get on with things you don't complain but by osmosis this this drive this sense of you know you've got to work hard you've got to you got to be honest, you got to be nice to people, you get on with things. And that's how you will get out of a hole, I suppose. That's how you, you, um, you know, in, in, improve your lot. Um, so I think, you know, I, I know I have um, a lot of drive, um, you know, sometimes not always for good, or some people in my life might say that. But I know, I know it's, it's very deep seated. It's a, it's just a really strong sense of also, you've got to life is fragile, you've got to make the most of it. And you've got to try and do some some good. And so I think I know that has, you know, that drives so much of uh, me as a person and some of the behaviors I display. Mm. Well, it is interesting, you know, sometimes uh, I was talking with my both my daughters, they say sometimes in their drive that they have, which they've inherited from me and my wife, that um, it, it could be that fear of failure that, that makes them go on for the next thing, the next big thing. You just don't want to let people down or be thought badly of. And also, it is easiest for us, my, my uh, mother, you know, bringing me up, uh, it, the bereavement again my father killed uh, flying when I was two and a half that she put a stiff upper lip on she was only 33 when she was widowed with three boys and so we just didn't show that we were upset we kept going on which I think it's this sort of mask that people put on and I then went to boarding school and, and then I went into the army and so each time you get a new mask to put on and it's sort of like will the, will the real Jonathan Perks please stand up well, what do you like you know can you show your emotions? No, don't show your emotions. Just, I can cope. This is great. But actually, we don't want people to break down and crumble blubbering mess on the on the floor of the supermarket. But, but at the same time, can you feel? Can you experience things? And I, I do think it was very good in many ways. And now we're sort of criticizing the snowflake generation because they're too soft and too kind in some people's opinion. I don't think that is because I've got four children in that generation. But I, I do think there's something about we bury things and we put on a good mask. But who is the person behind the mask and how can you really get back to your words of integrity, authenticity and how you treat people? And as you said, Sarah Ashman on, on her podcast, talked about she turned it around from treat people as you like to be treated mm -hmm. to treat people as they would like to be treated because everybody wants to be treated differently mm -hmm. that's really interesting let's talk, talk about in your life your happiest moment proudest happiest moment mm -hmm. and also one of the darkest moments that you've had and what you learned from each of those because each of them teaches us something mm -hmm. 
Well, I think a, a proud and happy moment um, and, and a few of them in, in, in a work setting, I've, I've been lucky enough to be involved in a, a many campaigns over the years, driving change, um, lots of tobacco campaigns around uh, the smoking ban and campaigning for the plain packaging of cigarettes, um, you know, lots of the clean air work we're doing now. Um, but, but some of those campaigns, a few campaigns around cancer services and 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 new screening programs and national cancer plans um the happiest moments have been well sometimes there's been an obvious moment of success so so of course you feel delighted if you know the government agrees to change the packaging of cigarettes or or the smoking ban was just so seismic um what i've absolutely loved is the persistence that that has taken, but I suppose the feeling of satisfaction that you have worked collaboratively with people, you've built a winning coalition, you've built evidence to convince people. Sometimes you've taken the public on a journey and you've shifted public opinion. And I think it's it's been incredibly satisfying. It, it's those moments, because, you know, some days for us all, you think, well, actually, you know, are we driving much benefit? And, um, you know, it, it can feel like a hard slog. So there are moments of, yes, we know this will make a difference or I've known it will make a difference to people. But it's also the the satisfaction of persistence pays off. So if I, if I take cigarette packaging, um, you know, when we started that campaign, this is when I was working at Cancer Research UK, I mean, I thought there is just like we don't stand a chance. You know, the political class um, are, are not up for this. There's a huge road to be traveled. And, you know, there were many, many organizations and people involved, some of them very inspiring. And, you know, these sorts of successes, there are always lots of people's successes. But I felt proud to play my part from where I was sitting. And I felt incredibly proud of, I suppose, collectively the sector putting together the case you, you, you know and almost a whack-a-mole of well you, you know you may have this objection government but we're going to commission the research that will show you uh that that might not come to pass and you know you may say the public's against it but we're going to commission polling and we're going to talk to the public and we're going to you know we're going to we're going to win this um culturally yes that's brilliant uh, so that's a, a lot of a lot of proud moments what about a dark moment in your personal life or your work life and how did you handle that? What did you learn from it? And what action did you take? Um, I think it's 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 probably um a couple of very difficult financial situations um when I've when I've been working where I've had to uh lead redundancy programs and I've had to uh, you know, both personally and from a charitable perspective, uh close down programs, stop activity. You know, these things are always difficult. It's people, it's their lives. It, it's, you know, some of these conversations have been incredibly difficult, sleepless nights. Um, you know, it's taken a toll, um, as, as it always does and as it should do. Um, what have I learned from it? You know, you've got to be you've got to be as honest as you can, you've got to be as authentic as you can, you've got to be human. And actually, you, you don't beat around the bush, you want to get on with this stuff as, as as quickly as you can, making sure it's well planned. So I think people, you know, people hate dishonesty and smoke and mirrors around this stuff. Um, and so I think what I've learned, you know, and I, I when I've been on the receiving end of, of, of one or two of, you know, similar decisions, you want to be treated like a grown up, you want to be told, um, you know, told it like it is, even if you're not going to like the news. Yeah. And someone said to me, their way of handling it, no one finds it easy. Uh, and I think a, a lot of time, if it's just an individual that you you find they're just not performing, it's not a good fit, they really need to go. A lot of people put it off for months, sometimes years. They go, oh, well, they're part of the family. And, you know, um, but the bit often they go, but it's not a charity, you know, <laughs> you know, so I have to make a commercial decision. But even if it is a charity, you actually have to make a commercial decision because you can't have someone who is literally, if we use the, the lung analogy, an oxygen thief. They're, they're taking air, but they're not giving anything back and they're not delivering on what they're supposed to be delivering what they're paid this this hard-won money that's been raised 
must be well used and we must have results. So I think actually charities like yours have to be even more focused on results rather than just letting it, it slip. But I, I do think this point about when you've got to have this conversation, um, what I've learned and found effective is be firm in the decision, be kind in the execution and help them leave the organization with the same goodwill as you brought them into the organization have a, if necessary, if it's appropriate, have some farewell to thank them for what they've done. But don't string it out and don't have a series of minor cuts when actually you need to take a big cut and, and cut deep and then allow people to move on. But to help them find their happiness elsewhere, help them leave with dignity and respect. And people often forget that. Um, thinking back to something different, a piece of advice that you wish you had when you started out in life, you know, your children are uh, the eldest only nine, so they've got a bit of time yet, but when they get to 16 to 18 years old, what bit of advice do you wish, now you've done what you've done, what bit of advice do you wish you'd given yourself then if you could have gone back to the future? I think it's something around confidence. So I, um, you know, have confidence, you know feel that you can dream and really go for it um and i and i think you know i've got to um a place where i feel incredibly privileged to have the job i do but growing up i i did lack confidence uh, in my abilities in in you know how much i could wish for certain jobs i was the first in the, my family to go to university um, I was quite deferential and sort of overawed in certain situations. I definitely think there's a that there is a sort of inner steel and, and 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 confidence and resilience and drive, but I it's it's taken me a while to, um, you know, uh, feel as though uh, you know I deserve some of these things or you know I've I've worked hard and and I can. I can, you know, claim a place. Um, and, I, and I think that's partly upbringing as well. Um, uh, and maybe it's tied up with class and background. So I do feel really passionately that, you know, everyone should have a, a, the same opportunity to shine. And I that's what I want my kids to feel, that, that you know, they're as good as anyone else um, and they shouldn't talk themselves out of things. Yeah, no, I, I think that's well put. And the what we call imposter syndrome is with many people apart from if you're the donald or you're boris you believe that you have complete entitlement to run the country or run the world uh, and therefore they, they never have a moment of imposter syndrome they should but they don't um or you could be Liz trust and come back again and go <laughs> it was nothing to do with me it was everybody else um it's just really are those those are what I call the misleaders. They, mm -hmm. they are not inspiring leaders, they are expiring leaders, but people willingly follow them and give millions of pounds to support them or lend them loans or whatever it might be. Interesting times, hey? Um, one thing you'd change in your life if you could live it again, Sarah, or a, a crucible moment that shaped you? I've, I've, I find this quite difficult because um, I'm very... I'm very cup half full. I think there's something about working in, in health and health charities. You see a lot of bad, unfair things happen. Um, you know, people getting horrible cancers and, you know, and, and lung diseases, and it can be so difficult. So I, I generally, you know, sometimes I've got slightly obsessed with, you know, counting blessings and, and, and feeling gratitude. So it's, 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 a harder one for me a, a crucible moment was um I did some work experience in a law firm I wanted to be I'd made up my mind I wanted to be a lawyer this is mainly from watching LA law uh, as, as a child and growing up um and and a friend's mum who was a legal secretary um got me some work experience and, and I got a, an audience with at the time the only female partner um in the law firm who who I was terrified to have to go and see for coffee and, um, you know, I was planning on applying to do law at university um, and she sort of interrogated me for a little while. And I'm sure I, you know, was very meek and, and didn't give a terribly good account of myself. But the thing she said, which 
probably changed my life is, well, look, what are you really passionate about? What are you interested in? And it was politics. I was doing politics A-level. And um, she said, well, why don't you do that at university? And you can always train to be a lawyer or a barrister afterwards. Um, and so, you know, that's what I went to university um, uh, to study. And and I never looked back because I loved it. And I got so interested in more so than 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 I was already in, you know, how society works, you know, how you can, you know, what's, what, what are evidence based ways that you can try and drive positive change. And that's, you know, been been where I've focused ever since. Fantastic. Well, aren't we lucky that you had that conversation and and these are what we call um uh, sliding doors kind of moments if you'd had you hadn't um and i think we shouldn't underestimate the impact positive and negative that we can have i remember my teacher at school primary school and i was struggling to do my english my spelling was awful i'd always come last in spelling tests and my maths i struggled and she said jonathan you're going to have to sort out your english and your maths got to get better at this otherwise you'll become a dustman now, you know, dustman, refuse carrier, whatever people call them. But that was such a shock to me. And I went back home in tears to my mother. Now, this lady didn't know. And in those days, teachers didn't work out that I had neurodiverse issues, like I was dyslexic and I had dyscalculia. I couldn't do the mental. I cannot picture numbers as, as people uh, can. Um, but what was lovely was my mother said, don't worry, dear, you'll get on with people. You 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 like people. You make connections with people. That'll be what you do. So in a way, from a disastrous thing, somebody else gave me another hope, like the woman gave you hope, and it was my mother, Tricia. Mm. But at the same time, it took me thirty years after that to shake off when people said, "Oh, you're 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 really quite bright, Jonathan." I go, "No, no, no, I'm thick," because that was my label, and I carried it with me like a rucksack. And and even now, it was funny, at the age of 61 with my daughters, and we were in Dubai or something, and they go, Daddy, you you, you really are. You're, you're very clever. You, know, you can remember all these books you've read, you know, 250 books in the last two years on audio books. Because you're dyslexic, you listen to them. I go, really? But no, I'm not really. Like, no, no, stop. You know, what, what, what is the lesson? So I just think, thank, thank you to that lady who got you to focus on what you really are passionate about. And, I, and it can be easily a trite thing to say just do what you're passionate about but it does it, it there's the icky guy which is this combination of um what you love doing your unique talents what the market needs and what they will pay you for and in the center is your icky guy as the japanese call it that really is your calling your vocation um let's talk about that you know what's your calling and vocation what gives your life meaning and purpose and we'll come back to the moral question next but what gives your life meaning and purpose well, I think it's it's trying to make a, a, a positive difference to the world. And I've been incredibly fortunate to, um, I think, be at the interface of medical research and health policy and um, charitable activity and campaigning. Um, so really trying to drive into policy and practice and society some of what we know works some some you know positive change mainly for health but one or two other things I think coupled with that is a sense of a strong sense of um you know there are burning injustices in the world to to, to take a, a phrase from a former prime minister but it's just um you know that makes me um proud to work in this sector because I think so many people who work for charities are driven by this sense of um, things are unfair in different ways and, and trying to distangle or dismantle some of that. I think the other thing that gives my life purpose is the children, you know, yeah. and, and family. And, yeah. and it does give a fantastic, you know, and, and, and I think whatever it is to have other passions in life, you know, to have this, this different set of things it just makes life so rich you know but yeah. it, it's you know but pre-kids it was sport or whatever it was you know yeah yeah no I think it's really important and um the Hoffman process really uh emphasized for me about family relationships so not only my two daughters uh, having a better relationship with my ex-wife having a great relationship with my wife Lee 
um, but also her family, her uh, my, my, my stepchildren, her daughter, her son, their husbands and wives and their grandchildren. And so family is really so important. And it's particularly later in life that people, when I went to an oncology department and I was waiting for my mother-in-law to have her operation, I was chatting in the lounge to three people who told me they were dying. One was in their 20s, one was in their 40s, and one was in their 60s. And I said, look, if I was ever to pass on your advice to people who might listen on my podcast, what what would you say? And they say, well, look, it's all about relationships. And and one of them said, I had a Rolls Royce and business and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't the important thing as I'm dying now. What it is is that the the life you live with the people and the relationships you're with and the difference you make to them. And and that that's um, the the sort of the wishes of the dying is is one of the famous ones that people often talk about. But but thinking about health and longevity, um, I'm very interested in the campaigns that, that you've been involved in in the past, particularly around smoking. And of course, I remember as I grew up, you had pictures of doctors in white coats, and they were there smoking. Well, I smoke Camel cigarettes because they're really good for you. And you go, but these are doctors. And they're, and they're telling you this is good to do, but now no longer. My brother's a doctor and he doesn't smoke and he actually doesn't drink either. Um, but the the real campaign that we're not winning at the moment is a bit about sugar, white death, uh, sugary drinks um, and processed foods, because there's a huge industry behind it. Billions. I mean, bigger than the GDPs of many countries. Uh, you don't get any advertising for broccoli or for spinach, or for kale. No no one is the kale industry that champions and goes and lobbies politicians, but you sure do about sugary drinks and beverages. Um, and they support all the sports and, and they're everywhere. And they're like, but it's the poorest in society who end up consuming that. And the people who are wealthier begin to realize and get educated to go, this is gonna kill me. It's not good, as I saw with my mother-in-law. The diet that she had led to her death. There's no doubt about it. And um, I, I don't know what you're seeing. Is there going to be any breakthrough in this? Are they really going to are governments like ours? They keep they keep uh, losing their nerve. You know, we're going to put a sugar tax on. Oh, no, maybe not, because they get lobbied. So what do you think? Yeah. Um, well, I, 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 it's intensely political and, and, you know, there's a huge industry, um, geared towards selling these products. Uh, it's intimately tied with, uh, income and poverty. It's expensive to eat healthily. Uh, and you see this, you know, in, in my part of, of, of London where I live, um, you know, some of the, the chicken shops and the convenience stores that don't sell fresh fruit and veg, you know, are located in the in, uh, you know, in the poorer, poorer parts of the neighborhood. So, um, yes, I, I think, you know, I suppose it goes back to my, my some of my happiest, proudest moments. We will get there, but it it's going to take time and effort. And we've been on the cusp of it. So I did quite a bit of work on this um, when I was at Cancer Research UK. And I know some people, really brilliant people actively campaigning. Um, it's it's this tipping point. You know, actually, there's a strong evidence case that you should take more action um, to, 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 you know, the, what we always say is you, you make the healthy choice the easier choice. It's not about telling people what to do. It's not about nannying, although actually there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, you know a good nanny for children um uh, but but the the evidence stacks up um uh, and we've got to shift the political narrative um we're not there yet and you're right because people it's it, it's a it's a great way of you know people keep losing their nerve i think when you look at the overall health cost the economic cost the impacts on society of some of what we're seeing um with poor diet and levels of obesity Mm. there is such a strong uh case to act um that we've got to build the coalition that that gets it over the line you know that that really does drive the change yeah well i mean um i'm looking forward to getting dr mark hyman on the program and uh his podcast is uh, doctor's pharmacy and in the research he's done he goes look you know in america and i don't think britain's gonna be much different 97 percent are metabolically unhealthy the, the metabolism is completely shot through through the standard American diet, which is sugar and processed food. And and yet there's this 
cabal between big sugar companies, processed food companies, and also the pharmaceutical companies, they don't make any money from telling you to eat good food. They, they can't say, oh, I'm going to prescribe, doctor's going to prescribe to you, have some kale and some broccoli and some nice, healthy uh, grass-fed beef and you'll be fine. They don't do that. But they go, but if you're ill, I've got some lovely tablets and pills to give you. So it's, it's almost the, the whole industries to, to break the the hold of this this we used to call it in the military day the military industrial complex that 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 you know encourages wars and the supply of weapons and equipment we've seen this again with ukraine and russia but we've also got this uh sickness pharmaceutical big food uh complex w- which is very hard for small charities and even politicians to fight against it because these companies are sponsoring the doctors through some of their training and some of the courses and um, football teams and and you know it's everywhere. So uh, it, it, it's a it's a topic in its own. But as you can tell, I feel the more I've read about it, the more I realise how serious the problem is. Um, which leads me on to the next topic, which is integrity, doing the right thing. Which I think a lot of the times people don't do the right thing in those cases because there's big money involved. But when you've let your moral compass, your true north slip, because it's a very important part to you, how have you brought yourself back on track, sir? Because we all do. We, we're we not perfect. We are human. We have feet of clay. What do you do to bring yourself back on track? I think, I think, um, I think particularly if you are, you know, you're, you're, you're driven. I think sometimes I've, I've, you know, you can get very caught up in, in things. I think there's something really important about trying to take a step back, get a sense of perspective again. Um, and I think I have got better over the years at doing that. Um, it, it, it's trying to get things back in equilibrium. So, so you know, there are different techniques and way of, way, ways of doing it, but really thinking... Um, kind of remembering who you are and where you you come from um mm. and just really going back to basics mm. um I, I think is so important the difficulty is carving the time out to do it and having the headspace to do it mm. and in the kind of busy mad whir of life sometimes that's that's easier but I suppose if I think of times when I thought oh, I didn't behave very well or I could have done that better or I feel disappointed about something um it's taking a bit of time to reflect. It's, it's. I mean, it is trying to not totally beat yourself up about it for too long. Mm. <laughs> um, but it's also then just going back to basics and thinking, you know, actually, uh, you know, there's a big world out there. And, um, you know, remember the person you are and the, the values you try to live by. Mm. Um, and yeah mm. no i think that's pretty good and i i found um a tip as i was to imagine i've got a i can't see the back of the screen but those listening i have a my father's cap mounted on the wall his naval cap and i and i i sort of occasionally will look at that and think well what would my father advise if he was now and he had my issue what advice would he give me because it's my i've got to sort this one out how should i behave what is the right thing to do when no one else is there just me but actually he knows I'm doing it and I know I'm doing it so it's a good reminder to me for those bad times um back onto the topic we we're talking about before health quotient is the third of the uh, the eight components of inspiring leadership um and uh what do you do apart from I'm assuming eating healthily which is so important sleep perhaps you probably could do with more of that couldn't you um exercise you know what what is your top tip about physical health and your top tip about brain and mental health yeah um i exercise is just um absolutely magical i mean you you see the impact for for people with lung disease and actually even quite severe lung disease it's counterintuitive but um we talk about pulmonary rehab which is essentially uh, you know a type a type of exercise and breathing exercises and under supervision and delivered by a multidisciplinary team 
can transform people's quality of life with lung conditions it's counterintuitive because if you're breathless you don't want to exercise you think it'll make things worse but it but, but it can make things much better but so so I always feel better after I've exercised and you know life is busy but just going for a jog around the park um I live just around the corner from a the local leisure center so sometimes swimming whatever it is it's really hard to fit it in and actually I I I heard the other day someone talking about you know you should think of exercise as a as a non-negotiable like brushing your teeth or just just something that you have to do for self-care um and I don't always manage that but it, I always feel much better mentally it is just um it's just taking a step back finding a way to and I have I wasn't always very good at this I would take work home and I would worry and I would stress and I would probably um uh, offload too much to those close to me I think now really you know the children of course are, are very good for t d diverting your attention um, but just having a break and forcing yourself to and, and knowing your limit a little bit more so sometimes not sending that email or thinking I'm going to sleep on it um, it sounds so simple but there's quite a tr there's power in that Definitely. I, and I, and we've talked about this before, uh, you sleeping on a, a conversation you and I had, you're going to sleep on it and think about it. And I think it's such a wise advice that there is research around thinking fast and slow um, and, and lots of uh, advice that actually taking time to think about it. Let me come back to you. I'll think about that one. But also at the same time, beware of the monkeys. So what happens is people come into your office there and they go, this is a problem. And you go, leave with me. I'll think about that. And actually, the danger is you've now got the monkey on your back and they <laughs> skip away, happy, light, because they've got rid of it. But actually, what I go is, hang on. So what do you think is the right answer? And they go, oh, we should do this. OK, well, go and do it. And they take the monkey with them. So so there is that balance about I remember there's a whole story behind it. But as chief of staff of the army's largest brigade, I ended up with everybody else's monkeys. And I was working crazy hours and the children were uh, age that yours are. And, and it was just, it was breaking me. And, and then I just started to coach people to solve their own problem and to keep their monkeys. But that's a whole story in itself, which we can spend time on. Emotional and social intelligence. That is, uh, are you using your emotions, your emotions intelligently? So Sarah, what would be your top tip? You, you have a lovely way of building rapport with people. It was so easy to get to know you. Uh, what would be a, a top tip you'd give to people, those those high IQ individuals who somehow crash around the place and terribly clever scientists or whatever, who the uh, the introverted one look at their shoes and the extroverted ones look at your shoes, but they, they're not really making much eye contact and they don't ask you about your day. It's always about their life. So what's your top tip? Well, I it's in two parts because... Um it's really it's taking the time to listen I mean I I I mean you know it does I, I love um being with people it's where I get my energy from um I love hearing people's stories um I love listening to people and and you know sort of making sense of the world that way um and something I think charities have to be and and you know leaders in charities have to be so careful about is you don't lose the connection with you know those that you are there to to, to help and the driving force so really make making sure that you are listening to different people who make up whatever organization it is or whatever community it is, I think is so important. But I think the tip is because I have to do this the other way. It's you've got to be quite intentional if it doesn't come naturally to you. I did once work, work for someone who was brilliant, but that was not naturally perhaps high EQ. And there was a post-it note above the desk saying, talk to people. Um, and I do think, you know, I, I sometimes have to force myself to, um, you know, the go through the budget with a fine tooth comb and, you know, um, make sure that I've, you know, read the insurance policy or whatever it may be. So it, you do have to be intentional if it's not your, you know, natural space, because I was given this advice when I became a chief exec, which was good advice. Don't just go to where it's easy or where it's comfortable. You know, you've, you, you, you've, you're, you, you've got to um, have mechanisms that make sure that you're kind of doing the full job and that you're giving people what they need in different, in different places. So it's listening, but it's if it's not your if it's not your bag, um, being quite intentional about that. 
I like that. Well, in the time we have available, we have um, some of the other elements of inspiring leadership like uh, CQ, collaborative and cultural intelligence about people's diversity, equality and inclusion. There's resilience, uh, RQ, there's brand, BQ, and there's LQ legacy. If we were to pick one, uh, which one would you like to talk about and what would be your top tip that you share on um, collaborative or resilience or brand or, or legacy? I think I'll pick collaborative. Um, it, it's it's something I have seen people do brilliantly. I love trying to do it, trying to bring people together and work collaboratively. And running Asthma and Lung UK, because we are a relatively new charity, it's been so important. It's that there's been this burning platform of, well, we've got to bring people together. We've got to create and build a new organisation and make people feel part of something, you know, that builds on legacy, but is slightly different and new. So I've been really interested in how do you build a positive culture? How do you collaborate to make people feel included and you know part of something exciting and you know lots of the the things I've been reflecting on these past couple of years well I mean none of it's rocket science you know you you um you know you set up ways of working that feel as though everyone's got a voice uh you make sure that you're listening you make sure that you're consulting um broadly I mean we've been going through the process of developing a new strategy a new name a new brand so this idea of that we're all in this together, um, you know, whether you've got asthma, whether you've got bronchiectasis, whether you're, um, you know, whatever your role in the charity, um, we are building something together in collaboration um, has been has felt so positive and important. And then there's the collaboration across the sector and with government and with others, because if I've learned one thing uh, uh, over the course of my career, it's you, can, you can't do this alone if you're trying to drive change or you're trying to stop certain things happening you've got to build alliances you've got to build collaborations and sometimes it's painful and it's hard work and it takes longer um but if you can find a way to do it um you can make leaps forward yeah i think it's so true on building alliances um lee's doing an event on the 20th of march uh which is bringing together a number of government departments and different charities to get them to collaborate with each other she has a real skill like you do getting different charities rather than compete with each other let's work together and often they go why is my, my special my ring my my money and and they forget that we can do better together um the, the pie can be bigger not just the just get your own slice um thank you for that final ones we're going to do executive teams uh, your favorite book and then we'll end with your top leadership tip um Executive teams, when you've had to turn a team around when it's gone a bit toxic or someone in it's a bit toxic, as we talked earlier, how have you turned it around? What would be your top tip for other people? They're struggling at the moment with uh, an individual or a team. It's just not kind of working. What, what have you done? I think it's hard work. Um, I have most successfully... I've, I've brought someone in to help. Um, I, I've not thought because sometimes that sometimes a, a you know a coach or a, um, a you know an external input can be really good. Um, this was very difficult for me at times, but trying to trying to find ways to name it, I think too often, and it and it probably speaks to. Uh, something about me trying to be positive and you know can do and um of of not being honest enough that this isn't working or this is difficult and actually you know if, if there's an element of toxicity usually those people or person they're not happy either so trying to name it um i found a really transformative uh mechanism is is feedback it's giving one another feedback in a really deliberate way and um with one team um I worked with I mean the first time we did it it was quite frankly terrifying because it wasn't a great situation people didn't get on brilliantly and so I felt very vulnerable and I'm sure some others did but it gets easier over time and if you build it in and you say you know we are going to say how was that for you what feedback would you like to give what could have been better um it's taken away a fear from me or it's, it's just it's it's incredibly empowering to say let's let's kind of be open and honest about this so mm. I think the top tip is finding ways to it's not easy but finding ways to name it name it yeah. and be honest about it yeah i love it 
and and eventually when you do that you you get to a place where you do create psychological safety where people can be much more open but at first it can be quite bruising if it's misused so so the way you do it is really important and in the teamwork that i do that is the thing that i think i've had the greatest breakthroughs with people where they're talking about what's working well what what things you sarah do that works well and if there was one behavior that would make you even better if you were to change that behavior or uh, or do something new stop start continue what would it be it would be this and and then that's captured on a, on a card for you and you take that away with you because at the time you might just blank out but you've got the card now of what people think you're doing well and what would make you even better um Penultimate question really is about your favorite book on leadership and uh, why you found that a good book that you recommend others might listen to or read as well. Not that you have much time, excepting that you've got so much going on. (laughs) I'm not a big one for books on leadership. I was given and and I if I'm really honest I didn't love it I felt quite stressed after reading it but there was a very good piece of um, wisdom I took from it the first 90 days uh, 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 about you know you know taking on a new role or taking on a leadership role I did feel quite anxious after reading it and just thought oh you know God, you know, am I up to this? Um, but I think the piece of wisdom that stayed with me or the 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 you know, thing that really resonated was actually when you join an organization and when you're a leader, um, you've got to find a way to add value. And uh, you've got to think about that kind of quite carefully. So it's both, you don't, you don't know all the answers, you don't, well, you never know all the answers, of course. But, but, but I, I have, seen some people who have you know sort of come in all guns blazing because they felt they should and they haven't taken the time to listen and understand the context and 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 pull on the expertise and the experience of others so it really made me think about you know when I've seen people at their best that's what they do they harness the great skills and experience of others but it also was a reminder to you know really think about none of us are good at everything you have some skills and you have some um things where you think you really can add value and to try to be quite focused on you know what am I going to try to help with where am I going to absolutely let others get on with things um and and being quite intentional about that I found useful fantastic so would you thank you for that would you kindly now introduce yourself tell tell the listeners about the role you do this will be a clip in its own right uh for your two minute top leadership tip we'll end with that So I'm Sarah Walno. I'm the Chief Executive of Asthma and Lung UK. We are the nation's lung charity um, fighting for a world where everyone can breathe freely with healthy lungs. And my top leadership tip is um, all around um, being authentic uh, and and yourself, but harnessing the the power of um, the cause in, in my case, because I'm leading a charity and it's got a strong purpose and I want to excite people about that and uh, share a vision where everyone feels part of something um, that is driving positive change. Fantastic. Sarah, it's been a real honour having you on the Inspire Leadership podcast. I wish you and your colleagues in the charity every success and I'm sure we will chat again. Thank you very much. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.